0: Yes, sirree, Bob. Once again, it is time for the boss show. Big Daddy is going to work. Say, you, oh, it's all right. Be calm now. There is a firm hand at the tiller. There is a strong psyche at the controls. Just relax now. There's a good man up here in the front end of this 707. And they ain't ad libbing. Bobs. Just sit back there, let your old keel drag on the bottom. Be careful of a few reefs here and there. Of many kinds, you know. There's all kinds of reefs that a man can hit in this life and get his old bottom ripped right out. So uh, just uh, hang in there, Dad. It's time for the boss show. (laughs) Bring it up there, baby. A fantastic ego fantastic, idiotic, klutz of an ego. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you, let's face it, if Mickey Mantle didn't think he couldn't tear the hide off that ball, he wouldn't. He just gets up there and hits the damn thing. Excuse the expression, but that's the way he would put it. As a matter of fact, Babe Ruth in a very, just take it down that little bit there, Babe Ruth, you know, in a very famous comment. When he was asked by a very famous sports announcer, "Do you have any any suggestions for the young kids out there wanting to, to hit?" And he says, "Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you hit the damn thing. <laughs> That's good advice." Uh-huh. There's Tempest Fugits. That's pretty good too, isn't it? Just <laughs> in hoc agricula conk. E plurbish unum. In est spittlek. Oh, uh, we're better begin things here tonight with a salute to the cultural achievements of our great land. You mind? All set in there? All right, let's have number one first. The columnist must be a reporter no, 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 that comes later in the show. Yeah, never give commercials until I say so. There we go. Friends, we've got a very eager sales department here. They just can't stop. Matter of fact, you turn your head and you are knee-deep in double mint gum commercials. You are knee-deep in guys telling you you better start drinking more beer, smoking more cigarettes. You are knee-deep in guys who are telling you you got to go to hell faster. da da Tataratati da da the I hear you talking, daddy. Da I'm going to sleep in the kitchen with my big old feet out in the hole. Baby, because what you done to me. I hear you singing it, man. That's it. Very good. Hold it, hold it. That means out when I do that, okay? All right, very good. We're back in control here. You know, speaking of... uh, You know, people constantly write to me and they say, Gee whiz, you know, a guy who sees so much rottenness in the world, a guy who sees so much evil in the world, how can he, at the other hand, dig the world? Man, this is a constant question. I get this all the time. And I don't recall ever seeing any rottenness in the world particularly, any evil. I see uh, beauty. It's all part of the same scene. And they're very closely allied. And in only a few countries... Do they come right out and admit that there is a close connection between what we call evil and what we call beauty? Did you read the other day the little news note that came out of Italy? They were having this beauty contest, see? And they'd been uh, advertising it for about six months until finally the big day came. And uh, all the people who showed up to be judged on the beauty contest were fat. A lot of fat chicks showed up. There wasn't a Sophia, Lauren in the lot. I mean, really fat girls. And so they decided instead that they would have a fat girl beauty contest <laughs> which I consider very pragmatic and is very typical of a certain type of culture now in Nigeria, on the other hand, this was a pretty interesting little note when i I was in Nigeria when this happened, I'm in Lagos, and there's all kinds of stuff in the newspaper about the beauty contest that they're having see and it was on Monday, I started to read about it. it was going to be held on Wednesday, so I figured, yeah, you know. Maybe I'll go out and see the chick that won this thing, Sam. Fantastic. On Wednesday, I am listening to the radio, to Lagos Radio. And they announced that the beauty contest did not come up because the judges sat there and looked at all the chicks and said there will be no winner because they're all too ugly. Now, how's that for truth? I mean, they got right down to the basis of it. Now, here, for example, I have a note from uh, Manila. Now, listen very carefully. How's that? From Manila. Big, fat rats. I repeat that. Big, fat, ugly, aggressive rats with yellow teeth and those little red beady eyes that look out from under the haystacks and run up and down the curves. Big, fat rats no longer plague the town of Slaman in the southern Philippines thanks to a beauty contest. Mayor Aurelio Ferreres had decreed that all votes cast in the beauty contest would have to be accompanied by the tail of a dead rat. (laughs) Now, how do you like that juxtaposition? Now, wait a minute, you haven't heard the rest of the piece here. The Philippine Free Press reported that after a hotly contested battle, the winner was Carmelito Caruso who rode to victory on the strength of, one, of 17,834 dead rat tails. The runner-up was Lolita Garage, 17,595. Helda Cantalno came in third with 15,166 dead rat tails. All told, the Fantastic Beauty Contest in this little town in the Philippine Islands paid off by 84,276 dead rats. Would we please salute the dead rats? <laughs> Somehow I like that, you know. People talk about... People talk about uh, what they call sick humor, black humor, evil humor, you know. Somehow this... <laughs> life itself is goes way beyond anything that Terry Southern can do. I mean, believe me, there's nobody can... Could, could comprehend... Can you imagine these three girls up there with their bikinis on? And in front of each one of them is a pile of 17,000 dead rat tails? And the judges are counting them? And one by one? <laughs> Bring it up big. Come on, big. Oh, boy. There, cut that now and hold that. I'm going to use that. Just hold it right where it is. That's fine. You don't have to set it back. That's excellent, I remember, you know, reading this piece, I remember a scene. Now, if there's any women and children with us tonight, you better, you know, better get out of here real quick. This is not a piece for women and children at this point. Yeah, absolutely not. About a year ago, I was part of a wild scene, the kind of scene that, uh... How many of you ever read Ray Bradbury's, uh what was the number something fahrenheit 472 fahrenheit fahrenheit 451 or something like fahrenheit 451 and i'm not a bradbury fan particularly because i think he's overly sentimental i think he's far too romantic to for my taste now you may be a bradbury man fine okay some people also like richard rogers fine i'm not going to put you down for that uh <laughs> some people dig uh Rudolph Frimmel. not going to put you down for that either. Other people, on the other hand, dig the Marquis de Sade. I'm not going to put you down for that either. However, for my taste, Ray Bradbury is a romantic. Totally so. And, uh, you know, he's got that that same old glop going that feels that man is going to go to Mars and be spoil Mars. Because basically, writers like that hate mankind. They do. Uh, uh, you, You find that people who are in love with uh, their childhood and that kind of thing, dandelion wine and so on, are people who do not like mankind, basically. Mankind is represented by adult walking around human beings, you see. And so these people have a tendency, whenever they write about man going to Mars, to show uh, I remember in, in one scene Bradbury's, where The Martian Chronicles, where here this fantastically beautiful civilization had departed, and man has arrived now and is throwing beer cans in the in the canals of Mars. Well, I'd like to propose to Mr. Bradbury and other romantics of that ilk. It's liable to come as a fantastic shock to mankind one day when they land on Mars. We know there's nobody on Mars now, at least ostensibly, according to the photographs that came through. But let's say land on planet X. And we arrive on planet X... And here is this crowd of people living like 50,000 times more slobbish lives than we could ever comprehend. They, they would, they, they could, sitting there watching television, sitting there drinking beer and yelling and hollering, throwing beer can at each other, you know, the whole scene. I don't know what mankind would do when he arrives at another planet and finds that not only is mankind more sane than anything else on any other planets, he's got more taste. You know, there's a, uh, incidentally, that, that brings up another point. Running parallel to that peculiar conceit, that romantic conceit, is the parallel belief implicit in so much of our writing that mankind is a rotten, scavenous, crummy, idiotic, ridiculous, evil creature and that out of the other planet somewhere will come this fantastic intelligence that has no wars... That has uh, resolved all all the little petty things, and and this this runs through almost everything that you see. How many times have you heard guys discussing you know the the old the old uh, Canard of the late night uh, late night the Long John type show where where the guy discusses that he's gone to Venus and he comes back and he's now telling us that we're not ready for that intelligence and oh you know this you've heard that kind of junk. Well, this, this is implicit in... Uh, what is implicit in that attitude is a hatred for mankind. A strong hatred for mankind. And that when we get to this other planet, these other creatures, these four-legged giraffe-like creatures, are so unbelievably uh, uh, tasteful, beautiful intelligences that they don't have wars. Well, that's a very questionable thesis. Extremely. And uh, you also find this in animal lovers, too. This is part of the animal lover syndrome, which is parallel almost always. I'm talking about the dedicated animal lovers. A parallel, a secret, usually not spoken, hatred of mankind. They've transferred their affections, uh, their human compassion, their involvement with one another, to a world that doesn't fight back. Uh, you know, a world, a world that does not make any demands, and a world over which you can feel secretly a sense of total superiority. Oh, sure, the dog lover feels superior to dogs. Uh, although, on the other hand, he will compare the beauty of dogs uh, uh, to the negative beauty of mankind. You say, well, dogs are more beautiful. They, you know, this and that. They don't do evil. However, I, in my love for my dog, have proven that I'm to, Oh, boy, it gets very complex. You know, it goes on and on. But anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, speaking of dogs. This is WOR, AM and FM, New York. Hit the button in there, man. Hit it, man. There you go. A columnist must be a reporter as well as a commentator and must go see the areas and find out the facts he is commenting on. For C.L. Salzberger, that means lots of traveling. His column in the New York Times analyzes foreign affairs. Here's how he gets the information needed to keep Times readers with it. The problem varies. If there is a very abnormal situation, such as Vietnam today, you have to leave the capital and go out into the field. If you want to have any idea of the reality you are seeking to describe, one simply has to do one's own legwork, otherwise you are not really able to discuss at first hand problems vital to your country and the audience you address you can discuss everything better after reading the new york times if you're without it you're not with it for home delivery call murray hill 70700 that's mu70700 you can discuss everything better after you've read the new york times now you think about that new york times You think seriously about that. I know at least five topics that I never see really mentioned in the New York Times. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, let's see. We also have the Collegiate Institute, and uh, they'd like to note that uh, this is directed to all high school seniors and recent graduates of high school. If your goal is a position in business or a baccalaureate degree or if you're interested in business administration or accounting or a liberal arts secretarial program, well, Collegiate Institute offers special one- and two-year programs that can start you towards that goal. And they're now accepting, that's Collegiate, they're accepting enrollments for both day and evening sessions. Interviews for the spring and fall semesters can be scheduled with the admissions dean by calling Plaza 8-1872. That's Plaza 8-1872, Monday through Saturday. And if you don't have your high school diploma, Collegiate offers a special 10-week course to enable you to obtain a New York State high school equivalency diploma. So you can make your future a reality at Collegiate Institute. Registered for more than 40 years now by the New York State Department of Education. The number is Plaza 81872, Monday through Saturday. Or you can get the 1966 catalog by writing to Collegiate Institute 501-501. Madison Avenue here in New York. Hey, you got another one in there for me? Yeah, it's a little thing there. There you go. There you go. Miller Highlight, the bright, clear taste in beer. Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Miller highlights. century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. You know, I'm an old aficionado of uh, beer commercials. I must have heard 48 trillion in my lifetime. And they all say that they're sparkling, delicious, they're flavorful. And not one in all the commercials I've ever heard even implies that you can get a buzz on. (laughs) Just, you know, passing in passing, it's just it's how we skirt the issues in our life, you know? One beer does say, one beer says it, they says this beer is more uh, more to the point. How about that? Have you heard that beer commercial? The, the beer the, And they're, they're selling ale, that particular company is selling ale, they say it's more to the point, but they don't tell you what the point is. You have to look under the table to find the point. You know, you see those feet sticking out and it gets there much quicker. Let's see, wouldn't it be nice, friends, to be able to afford made-to-measure clothes? <laughs> well, now you can. You start out by selecting the fabric to begin with. It's a beautiful scene. You can see yourself now doing it. Then you choose the style that's right for your height and your weight. And then the expert tailor helps you select the proper custom features. Oh, what a scene. The proper shaping of the jacket waist, the... Sh- The shoulders, the lapels, the trouser taper, the vents. What are the vents? The things with the zippers on it? Oh, I see. So that your suit has all the details that suit you best. Oh, boy. When you wear made-to-measure clothes, you're assured of complete individuality. All your little bumps and knobs will show. Absolutely with all their beautiful clarity. Visit one of the conveniently located Woolmouth, custom tailoring specialists and you will discover that Woolmouth suit prices start as low as $69.95 for a customized, made-to-measure suit in your choice of over 1,500 fabrics. That's Woolmouth. See your phone book under Tailors for the shop nearest you. In Manhattan there's a Woolmouth store. W-O-H-L-M-U-T-H at 122 Nassau Street. Ask for Irving. It says right here, ask for Irving. In Brooklyn, at 2138 86th Street, ask for Bob. Oh, Brooklyn. And tell him, Charlie sent you. That's me. Oh, we have one more thing here. Rover 2000, which is a fine British automobile. And I am not so sure that you are capable of measuring up to it. I mean that literally. Many American drivers, many American car buyers do not have the... the Requisite taste yet in automobiles to appreciate a Rover 2000. Do you agree with me? This is a fine piece of machinery and you have to have a special taste. I'm not trying to do any status bit here or an in bit. It is quite literally true that I think the Rover 2000 and a lot of things that are in the Rover 2000 are about four or five years away for the average American automobile buyer to appreciate. In fact, according to Industrial Design, not long ago, which is a top magazine that was the lead of their article and it was all about the rover 2000 Uh, they said are the american car buyers yet ready for a really safe automobile and this is it the rover 2000 superb machine we'll send you pictures if you're interested send your name and address to uh (laughs) in w-o-r 1440 broadway and we'll see that you get the pictures okay is that enough there fine let's get back to reality here now got, I, I' that that story of the rat I'm going to have to finish the story forget all the Ray Bradbury stuff I got I digressed on all of that. I'm sorry uh, that was a digression the reason I brought up Bradbury, though is for good one good reason there was an opening passage in Fahrenheit 451 that described the peculiar horror of the let's put it this way the decay of urban life now we all know that it's getting lousier and lousier to live in cities Do you agree with me there or do you disagree some people Because you know one thing i must say this though the first thing that happens when a guy gets into into a big city and he comes out of a small town uh, is the excitement of being in a big wild swinging uh, noisy fantastically activated thing. It's like, it's like you know, suddenly you're all excited by the externals, the big buildings and a lot of lights and a lot of traffic. Wow. Well, after you're around a while, you begin to see other things until ultimately the other things begin to be far more noticeable to you than the things which originally attracted you to the city, to the urban life. The theater, the uh, the museums, you know, how many times can you go to the museum if you're here nine years, you know? Uh, the theater, after a while you get tired of Mary Martin singing, And After a while you get tired of Barbara Streisand singing, people. Oh. You know, you get tired of this, you know, you, you've had that a little bit. You get tired of standing and looking at the big building. And you begin to see other things. Well, now... It is my thesis, uh, for those of you who have this great dream of getting out of the little city, the little town, and coming to the big town, that the things which just used to be marginal on the edge of a big city, that the dirt and the violence and all the other little, uh, the little things, are becoming larger and larger in a, in a very subtle way. Not in an obvious way. And I'm not talking about the obvious things like, uh, oh, yeah, they're knocking down all the old buildings, uh, which is what most people get angry about. Or, oh, yeah, you know, traffic on, uh, uh, on uh, this street or traffic on that avenue. No, this is not the obvious. I'm going further and deeper than that. There was an opening passage in Fahrenheit 451 that described this world of the future where these uh, cars were whizzing along and the whole scene of the, the, the brave new world and he, he subtly showed a peculiar sense of dirtiness. Just dirtiness. The dirtiness of a lot of things that we live in today is almost never discussed. People always talk about the shape of a building. And so you read guys like Louis Mumford, and they're always talking about architecture, what kind of buildings, going to be, what kind of this is going to be that, uh, what kind of uh, uh, broad, they always talk about broad expressways and beautiful parkways and beautiful plazas and so on. But they never discuss that in the middle of that beautiful plaza, there will be the remains of what 14,000 French poodles have left behind. This they never mention. Never discuss it. And so, if you hear not too long ago, Life magazine had a whole big shlemu about the new cities that the new planners are planning. But the one thing that the new planners don't seem to take into account is the attitude that the individual walking around man has toward the environment in which he lives. This is what really shapes the environment. It doesn't make any difference if you have this fantastically beautiful roadway and this beautiful building and this beautiful expanse of sky and this beautiful tree. If everybody throws his peanut butter wrappers under the trees and he allows his Airedale to do whatever his Airedale cares to do along all the sidewalks continually, that that that, that is the thing that they never want to discuss. And that's the thing that is making the city no matter how beautiful the city is getting and it is i think in many ways many of the major areas of most american cities are more beautiful today than they were maybe ten fifteen years ago there's no question about that but it's when you walk along and you look down at the edges it's like going i remember going to the world's fair when the world's fair was in operation all these fantasy buildings did you go to the fair here were these beautiful buildings. I mean, they really were. They were like out of fairyland, wonderland, all that stuff. But uh, as you walked around the fair, you kept smelling garbage. Everywhere you went, there were it was garbage. And floating in this beautiful, beautiful pool with the lights and the blue and the red, yellow and the green lights, this lovely pool that ran the length of the fair, there was uh, cigar butts and orange peelings and beer cans floating and it didn't make any difference how many beautiful lights you had how many magnificent archways all you saw after a bit were the cigar butts you saw the beer cans and I remember walking past, I'll never forget this incident, I walked past the Vatican Pavilion of all places and here was this big pavilion a you know, fantastic thing it had spires and gothic archways and it had stained glass I walked around the back of the pavilion and, 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 and it was a road it was not an alley it was a roadway between that and I think it was the Belgian village or something I'm walking on, and I am knee deep in, in, in garbage Ooh just fantastic garbage and all these people are picking their way through this garbage all over the place there were busted up waffles and ice cream cones and and, and uh, wow you know wowie. and it just uh, colored completely the entire experience of being there and and this side of urban existence is never discussed the inherent dirtiness of it dirtiness the evil strain, and it's a diff- it's a peculiar kind of dirtiness, and it isn't the kind of dirtiness that street cleaners can do something about. So you get a bunch of street cleaners. No, it's the kind of dirtiness that makes people write things on walls. It's the kind of dirtiness. Oh yeah, this is there's a tremendous advance in that writing stuff on walls everywhere you go now. What can you do about millions of people who spit on streets all over? Can the street cleaner come along? You know, no. It's an attitude that people have towards their environment, and Bradbury brought this out nicely in 451, just in a couple of passages. Well, now I'm the other day. I say this editorially. The other day, it was about a year ago actually. I am standing in the middle of one of the most beautiful sections of New York City. I tell you a little scene, and this this uh, tell you exactly where it was in case you're interested. It's in the '60s on Park Avenue. Believe it or not. Now I'm not inventing. This is exactly what happened. And here is this beautiful roadway. This is Park Avenue. This is like the epitome of it. You know, Park Avenue, the '60s. Wow. On one hand, you see the penthouse apartments climbing high to the sky, and you look over to the other side and you see the townhouses standing there up against that up against that twilight. And I'm I'm walking along Park Avenue. All around me there are these nice little ladies, and there you can see the cabs whistling along and. It was kind of, oh boy, this is the New York that people talk about. You, know, you can see the light shining, the golden reflections off the windows, of the sun is going down, and you can smell just the edge of of, of Central Park. By, this is it. I'm looking down. This, I'm looking downtown, you see. And there's a, there's a particularly beautiful scene if you know New York well, as you come along the 60s at a certain time of day, and you look downtown down park avenue because it sort of slants down on kind of a hill and i'm looking down the scene i'm walking along the street and say wow boy i'm digging it what a scene see oh man hey now i come to a stoplight the light goes red and i'm standing there you know waiting for the walk light. it's in the 60s and i'm surrounded by a bunch of nice little old ladies and people pushing english prams and you know, the whole scene. Elderly gentlemen wearing Chesterfields with velvet collars and derby hats. and Oh, you know, the whole the whole thing of the great new swinging in New York. And uh, Rami, there's about five go-go type chicks, you know. You can just see them. They got their sugar daddy somewhere who's paying the bills. And they've got their Karej boots on and their black glasses. And the whole bitch, you know, the whole scene. And I'm standing there digging it all, waiting on the curb there for the light to change. When I'm suddenly aware, I'm suddenly aware of a peculiar kind of movement, a strange kind of movement, just you know, just like that. And I glanced down.! Ooh, yeah. Ooh, ah. Casually walking along the curb was one of the biggest rats I've ever seen in my life. Big, fat rat of a dirty, rotten, crummy, brown, gray, mottled, Rabidic kind of style, you know, he's kind of like he's rabid, and he just casually walks along in that curb there, you know, down on the, on Park Avenue, off six, walks along two little red beady eyes, and these people all look, and he just walks casually along, and he's got a fishtail in his mouth, yeah, he walks along, looks back at us casually, and down into the sewer he went. Let that soak in for a while. <laughs> now, 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 I, 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 uh, I have to say that <laughs> took one look at that scene. Holy smokes, you know. Shooey, wow. Magoo, yeah. Now, now, now that, that, um, it is that kind of unpleasantness that is beginning to be more, and it's not going away. I hasten to say it is getting more. And so one night, I'm, I'm again, this is another little scene. You all set with another one there? Get number two ready in there. Oh, boy. <laughs> Hold it. Not yet. Not yet. I'll give you the cue. Just just get it. It's, it's a pre-cue, see? I am sitting in a restaurant. Nice restaurant, you know. It's the kind of restaurant where, well, they they write the menu out by hand in purple ink. You know, that kind of restaurant. And it's all done in incomprehensible French. You ad-lib your way through it, see. And it's the kind of restaurant where they, they very discreetly don't even mention prices. If you ask what it costs, you shouldn't be there. (laughs) Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, that's their attitude see and don't ask me why i was there i was there that's it none of your business why i was there as a matter of fact i was there see and so i'm sitting next to that plush wall and it was one of these walls you know the kind of that is vaguely uh velvet you know, the kind of wallpaper so it looks like velvet or something it's a kind of a padded place and it was nice and dark and Gee, you know, I could smell the wine bottles and I could hear the corks going off in the distance and all around me in the darkness. I could see little candles lighting up these tiny tables where these trysts were going on. Incidentally, are you aware that that's a new industry in most major cities? Uh, Tristville, where restaurants that are totally dedicated to the consummation of trysts. And they have their highest, biggest, deepest, most expansive business in the middle of the afternoon. Not at night, but in the middle of the afternoon. You know, when the the big time operator slips away from the office for a couple of hours and he hollers to his secretary, I'll be back. I'm going over to the uh, water agency. Yeah, well, look, uh, don't bother to call over there. I may be in and out. Yeah. And he slips out in the middle of the afternoon and he hops in a cab. And the cab scurries through the city streets. And it stops in front of this discreet little doorway with a green canopy out in front of it. It's a place called Emile's or something like uh, La, Coque de, de La Coque de Whoopie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or uh, La Golden Dorissimo. And uh, he sneaks out of the cab and he scurries in. And somebody says, Ah, 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 yeah, 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 mansuanda son, Yes, come, 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 She is here, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they hurry him back through the darkness and sitting back there behind the potted palms... And the darkness there with a glass of wine in front of her is l'objet, the object, the chick. And she's sitting there waiting, see. And they go on for about two... They live in this dream world, see. And they go on for about two hours. And her husband, of course, thinks she's at the dentist's. And so they go on you know, for about two hours, and they hold hands, and they talk, and they dream, and they discuss, oh, boy, if only this, if only that. And then he said, oh, oh 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 wow, I got to go. And out he goes, back to the office, and that's Tristville. Well, I'm in this beautiful restaurant one day, sitting there, and they bring me the escarole, and they bring me the snails, and uh, now I'm about to go into... uh, Oh, the broiled brook trout, a la Emile. And it arrives. And I'm sitting, we're right by the table there, right by the wall. See, I'm seeing Suddenly so I notice something off screen to my left. I suddenly notice this a strange little movement off to my left, see, on the wall. And uh, I suddenly notice it, see. And I, I can't, I... Going up the wall... Making two little loops and going back down again is a long, solitary procession of evil, sneaky, greasy looking cockroaches. Oh, <laughs> yo, Kabbalah. <laughs> that kinda kills romance. <laughs> How much time do I have? You're, 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 you're very good. That kind of kills romance, you know. And I'm I'm sitting there watching this thing go on, and then I begin to and then I begin to realize this is the part of urban life that is hardly ever reported. You know, we always talk a great deal about it in connection with poverty. We always talk about it in connection with the with the people who are not you know the the underprivileged. Uh, that's quite true. Oh, yes, these people have lived with that all of their lives. And and I only pity them. Uh, there it is. But the curious thing about modern urban life is the advancing dirtiness of it. And I'm not talking about just simple things like smog. This is obvious. Everybody's doing something about that. And it's man-made dirtiness. That's the most evil kind. That's the sneakiest kind. Uh... And, and, and I say it's becoming all inclusive. We just expect it now. You walk into a bus, you expect it to be filthy. We just kind of, you know, that's what buses are like. They're filthy. (laughs) And you, you sit down, you look at the seat to make sure that nobody has spit on it. Yeah, oh, yeah, you got to do that. Oh, sure, you look at the seat to make, you know, Wow. you you look and you finally say, all right, and you sit down, you know, and you pull your feet up, and now you're knee-deep in cigar butts and candy wrappers and, boy, uh, stuff you're going to do. And you just ride, you don't even notice it, you see. That is beyond noticing. You get into a cab, oh, wow. Oh, man. Uh, You get into a cab and you find that the, the, the three preceding passengers have been sick on the floor... Oh, yeah. You sit there with your feet up on the back of the seat so that you, you know, <laughs> the and the driver, and, you, and you, have you ever tried to complain to a cab driver about it? You say, hey, you, you know, fine. He said, what do you mean you're not? I don't have no time to clean a cab. What do you get? You're not to get in You either get in or you get out. I just say, look, you're in there for a couple of minutes. And I want to hate you. Well, all right. And, uh, oh, sure. I, I'm being very brutally frank here tonight. But this is the fact of city life you got to accept it. That's the way it is. How many times have you gone in? Oh, sure, practically every doorway now in the big city, including some of the most beautiful along Park Avenue. Somebody has been there before you and has uh, what they euphemistically call committed a nuisance. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. We, we're honest? All right. <laughs> and, you know, you just step over your walk along. <laughs> I mean, you just accept this it's a part of life now you notice that that is never discussed in the dream worlds that people like say Life Magazine always projects what a great world what a fantastic new city it's going to be to live in it never occurs to them that guys are going to commit nuisances in the doorways of these beautiful new buildings designed by say uh, Frank Lloyd Wright or something. <laughs> you know nobody oh yeah oh that's that's all part of the new scene uh, they never. They, it never occurs to people in that broad promenade that they're going to build right down the middle of the city to make life so pleasant that everybody's going to throw cigar butts in it immediately, instantly. And in, this, in addition to that, they're going to allow their dog to do whatever he cares to do. And if you ever object to it, you're obviously some kind of a nut. Oh, yeah, yeah, I had to talk about the argument that I had with the lady one day. Right ahead of me, you know, I'm walking down the street in, in, in a beautiful section of New York. Right ahead of me, this lady is standing there, and she's got the chain. And, and you know, her dog is, you know, you know what I mean. The dog is, you know, really going to, uh, really going to town. Right in the middle of the sidewalk, see? And I says, lady, I says, lady, everybody's going to step on that. She says, that's none of my business. I said, but lady, couldn't he do it over here, three and a half feet? She says, he doesn't like it over there. I says, oh, I see. And she looked at me as if I was some kind of a communistic nut, suggesting that I may not like this. You know, well, who are you to say this kind of thing? And I says, lady, what would you do if I did that in the middle of the sidewalk? And she says, oh, she turns away. like, what a terrible, awful person. And all the while, little Fifi is going to town right there. <laughs> oh, my. It is this kind of thing that is slowly beginning to make city life untenable. This kind of thing. And this, incidentally, attitude. This constant attitude. Oh, yeah. I... I, I, uh, Have you ever walked in the most beautiful sections of most American cities these days on a hot summer day with that beautiful sun hanging over us and that lovely blue sky? Boy, do they get ripe. Do they get ripe. And you, you have the image of 10,000 10, French poodles before you, the image of 400,000 cocker spaniels, of 22 million ones. You have the uh, the image of 14,000 Great Danes, and it's all floating skyward, and you walk through this miasmic swamp, and you say, oh. well, we keep remembering it, Shepard, this is the brave new world. This is the... This is the time. This is where it really begins and ends. This is part of the scene. But this isn't part of the scene. Have you, seen, have you, ever, wa- have you ever looked at, in the in, in, uh, newspapers or in magazines where they say uh, there's a, a watercolor drawing. It says, artist's conception of the new mall, of the new building. You seen those things? And they all look so nice and pale like an English watercolor pink and blue, and you see these little trees standing all around it, and the little trees look like the kind of trees that they have for model railroads, and little trees, and you see these tall, thin people all walking, frozen forever in time and space, and everything looks so clean and beautiful. It's artist conception, a beautiful new building, and there's a lot of things they don't draw in that artist's conception, a lot of things, a lot of smells. A lot of things written on the side of buildings. Oh, yeah. Five minutes after the New York World's Fair opened, at least 20 million people had written things on those arches. You remember those archways that said, Peace through understanding? <laughs> That's a nice piece of irony. You should have read some of the things that they wrote in pencil and in lipstick and in fingernail polish and in things I can't even mention on the air that they had written all over those archways containing those wonderful slogans. Yes, peace through understanding.